This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Suffering and Indifference, recorded June 27, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the two topics that were suggested were a further discussion of the impersonality of suffering and the high indifference, and they are actually related. So we'll try to tie them together and see how they're related. First of all, what do these two topics mean, just very briefly? The impersonality of suffering, or we should perhaps say the insight into the impersonality of suffering, constitutes a major turning point on a spiritual path. In terms that we use at the center, you might say it constitutes the beginning of the turning point between purification of mind and illumination of heart. And put very simply, and I'm oversimplifying, once this insight really sinks in, the path ceases to be a burden and a struggle and becomes a delight and a joy. So it's a very important insight on the path. And then the term high indifference was a term used by Franklin Merrill Wolf to describe the finalization of his process of realization of gnosis. His actual gnosis unfolded during a period of 33 days, beginning with what he called a nirvanic realization and ending with what he called the high indifference. So they are related immediately because when people think of the term indifference, they think of being indifferent to suffering, to the sufferings of the world and other people's sufferings and so forth. That's how that term is used in our culture, which is why Dr. Wolf specifically called it the high indifference to disassociate it from that use of the term, although I must say it haunted him for the rest of his life, and I think uh, he might have chosen a different term if he had known how much it was going to be mistaken. But nevertheless, it's still a difficult thing to deal with, just as the impersonality of suffering is a difficult idea to deal with, because that also tends to indicate to us a kind of low indifference to suffering. Suffering isn't personal and it doesn't have any value or it's meaningless and we're not affected by suffering. So they are related in this sense and they're related in terms of being related to very important stages on the path, the midway point and the end point. So how will we tie them together and how will we get into this? Let's go back to the beginning and to what the root problem is. From a mystic's point of view, the root problem, the root of suffering, and suffering is the problem, is ignorance, ignoring reality. It's actually quite simple. If you don't know what's real and what's not real, if you're operating based on a delusion, then you're bound to have suffering. But we can say more about this. What ignorance gives rise to is the delusion that there is a self, an I, an ego. Not just intellectually, but that experience of going around in one form or another, and for different people it's slightly different, thinking that there's some I entity, perhaps encased in a body, that is separate from the world, in conflict with the world. And because we know that everything in the world that does exist, eventually will not exist, some I that is eventually and ultimately going to die. 
And that's really, you might say, the basis of our suffering. That hidden existential fear is behind almost all other forms of suffering. And that sense of a separate self, a self that is separated from the world, gives rise to desire for the things of the world. Based on several things. First of all, just based on the idea that this self, in order to continue, has to have support of other things in the world. This should give us a clue, by the way, that we're not actually separate, that nothing exists independently. But we don't understand it that way. All we know is that if this self is going to continue, we've got to have some things. Food, shelter, clothing to begin with. But then we wonder about tomorrow. What about where's my food going to come from tomorrow and my shelter and my clothing? So not only do we need enough food and shelter and clothing for today, but we also start to think, well, I better store some up for tomorrow. But what about the day after tomorrow? Well, I better store up a little bit more. What about the day after and the day after? Well, I better store up as much as I possibly can. And then, of course, what about the other people who have the same desires want that? Well, I better get some guards, and I better get some locks, and I better get some dogs, and I better get some police and some armies and so forth. There's no end to this desiring. You're never going to get enough. So it's this sense of separation that gives rise to that desire to accumulate, to build protection for this exposed, vulnerable little self in there. There's also, however, a spiritual import to this, which we don't realize. The sense of separation naturally gives rise to reaching out to try to become whole or complete again. The ultimate dream of the ego is to own everything. That's a a delusion, but the impulse there is a spiritual one. If you own everything and everyone... The whole universe, all the galaxies and the stars and all that, if you could bring it all back within this one circumference of self, then in a certain sense, there'd be nothing outside again. So there's actually, in that desire for things of the world, there is a true spiritual intuition. It's misdirected. It's based on a delusion, but just that desiring to assimilate the world into self gives us a clue that there is this we might say, original unity, and that our experience in the world is somehow broken or disrupted, as it's often put in various traditions. This is the whole meaning behind the myth of the fall in Christianity. And almost all traditions have some form of a fall myth, by the way. So then this delusion of self gives rise to desire for things in the world, the forms of the world, and this gives rise to attachments to forms. Not only do we desire them, when we get them, we become attached to them. We become attached to our houses, our cars, our spouses, our friends, our lovers, our jobs, and so forth. And because all things in the world are transitory and impermanent, when they go as they must, the way of all flesh, then we have suffering. So we can trace it all the way back through suffering, through attachment, to desire, to self, to ignorance. So the first thing that we can really sort of look at here is self. We can't really look at our ignorance. If we could see our ignorance, then we wouldn't be ignorant anymore. But what we can look at is self. Now, notice that in this description of how suffering uh, comes about, self is described as a delusion. 
So the challenge of the mystic is you believe that there's a self. You're firmly convinced there's a self, not just intellectually. You experience there's a self here. Well, if that's true, go find it. And after you really make a commitment to a spiritual path, you begin to have certain insights about at least what the self is not. And you begin to see, well, the self really isn't the body. If you meditate on the body, if you observe the body, you see that the body is really made up of a bundle of sensations that are constantly coming and going. And so you couldn't be any one particular sensation because it's here today, gone tomorrow. It's like each little moment is a mini birth and mini death. And if you watch your feelings, the same thing happens. One moment you're feeling happy, joyful, the next moment you're feeling sad. Sometimes feelings can hang around a long time, but nobody has one feeling that lasts forever. The same thing with thoughts and so forth. All the things we thought were the self, constituted the self. We discover this constant movement. Everything's constantly flowing, moving. Your experience of the world starts to change, literally. Instead of being a world made up of solid individual objects, it becomes a world made up of flow and flux and becoming. But the, one of the last things that we hang on to is our suffering. Because our sense of self is greatest in the experience of suffering. And you can test this out for yourself. For instance, one of the things that we like to do, that we consider joyful, is to go to some form of entertainment. Whatever your particular uh, brand is, sports, or a movie, or a nice good book. Now, notice what we say here. We lose ourselves in the activity. If you're a football fan, you go to a rousing football game, and you cheer for your team and so forth, and the sense of your life and the problems and everything you have drops away. You get absorbed in a good movie, a good drama, you identify with the characters on the screen, and the sense of your own life drops away. This is why people have art and entertainment. This is what art and entertainment do. They momentarily mask this sense of self, and the reaction is naturally, we like it. We pay good money to get this experience. Some people like horror shows. They pay good money to get the, the uh, daylight scared out of them, to experience fear. Right now, people are pouring into this movie Jurassic Park because they want to experience fear, thrills and chills. Maybe it's a sad movie. I think they're not very popular in this cycle. These things have cycles. Uh, but back in the 70s, there was oh, the movie Love Story about a young couple falling in love and one of them gets cancer and dies. People pay good money to go experience sadness and grief. It's to experience the emotion without a sense of I in there. To lose yourself. To be able to just experience an emotion without feeling it threatening. What happens in real life, however, if you ran into a Tyrannosaurus Rex? You experience fear. What's the difference here? The fear is now associated with some I that's going to be threatened. If your own lover gets cancer and so forth, you'll experience all that grief, but you'll feel it as suffering. It's happening to a me. My suffering.
my fear. So one of the hardest things to see is that this suffering isn't I. And actually the suffering is the perfect place to go look for I. You have a very a hard time finding I in the midst of a very entertaining movie. There isn't much sense of I there. But in the midst of suffering, you experience I very strongly. So on a spiritual path, as we examine suffering more, and of course all mystical paths urge you to, instead of running away from suffering, to examine it. In a psychological sense, we might say here. It's not so much even running away from it physically. For instance, you get a toothache. You call the dentist, and he says, oh, I can see you at 3 o'clock today, and uh, you're going to go and see him. Well, then, meanwhile, you've got four hours to kill. Most of us, what do we do with that four hours? Anything but experience that toothache. You might want to take some aspirin or whatever you got in the meantime. But our minds are constantly turning away from it. We, we just can't wait until we get to that dentist and get it taken care of. I'm not talking about resisting taking aspirin or not going to the dentist or doing something silly. I'm talking about a psychological attitude. I'm talking about turning this experience into an opportunity rather than as something to repress and push away. And what can we discover here? And this is where this impersonality of suffering comes in. What you can discover through observing your own experience of suffering and then also observing other people's suffering is that the suffering is not yours. Suffering is a common human property, we might say. It doesn't belong to any of us. And that is very, very liberating. That doesn't mean that you won't experience suffering. And in a certain sense, in fact, it may increase your experience of suffering because you are suffering with all suffering in the world. The term compassion means to suffer with. Passion originally meant suffering, not just passion the way we think of it. And calm means with. So compassion means literally to suffer with. So in one sense, you are open to all forms of suffering. It's the exact opposite reaction that we normally have. It's hard enough dealing with our own suffering. We feel we have to protect ourselves from everybody else's suffering. We have to become thick-skinned and hard-nosed. We think that's the way to protect ourselves in the world. Compassion is dismantling that. And we're terrified of that. We know how uncomfortable it is to experience our own suffering. Then to experience everybody else's suffering seems like just too much burden to undertake. But if you begin to understand the impersonality of suffering then the suffering is not so burdensome. There's a kind of a judo trick in there. You find you can bear your suffering and you can bear other people's suffering, and that mutual sharing of suffering lessens the sense of self and creates the sense of closeness and intimacy among people. Human beings share very little else but their suffering, frankly. You know, their visions of happiness and stuff are very different. They're at odds with each other over so many things. But not when it comes to suffering. 
And this is what mystifies people when they read the lives of saints and so forth who go off and spend their days with lepers or like Mother Teresa of Calcutta with starving people. And they think, how can they do that? How can they bear these hardships? Or when they just live simply, they don't have to live as uh, extreme ascetics. And worldly people look at them and shake their heads. And they, sometimes they think it's stupid. It's all a waste. You should get what you can out of life. Or sometimes they think they're heroic and they put them on some pedestal. Ananda Moyamai, who's uh, a great uh, Indian saint of this century, said uh, she was a renunciate, a, a, a pretty extreme renunciate. And those who were her followers and stuff thought this was a very noble, heroic sort of action to take to be such a renunciate. And she laughed and she said, I'm not the renunciate. You people are the renunciates. You're renouncing eternal happiness. I'm soaked in happiness. Who's the renunciate here? This is a trick you have to find out for yourself. You start to discover this giving, this letting go. In that process, you find out that suffering is not personal. It's not happening to anyone. It's just, again, phenomena rising in consciousness, passing away, like your sensations, like your feelings, like your thoughts. So when you say, then you come to realize suffering is impersonal, it sounds like I wouldn't care about suffering. Quite the opposite happens. But it's no longer a purely personal caring. It's impersonal here in a technical sense, not impersonal in the way the connotations that word has in our language. It's a kind of indifference to one's own suffering. You don't make that distinction. You don't make that differentiation between my suffering and your suffering. That distinction starts to slip away. It's suffering. It's common human suffering. This is how you can relate to people. It's the true basis of relationship. It's the true basis of friendship and ultimately of love. And this is when the spiritual path really starts to become joyful. You discover, gee, the more you give, the more there is to give. It wasn't like the self was some little limited entity, you know, that's got a limited amount of love to work with. You give a little bit more, there's more. You give more, there's more. There's no end to this. And the more you do, gee, the less sense of self is, the less suffering there is. This is a, a really miraculous discovery. It is joyful. It's not, you don't undertake this as some sort of austere practice. You may have to prime the pump a little bit in the beginning, you know. We're so afraid of doing anything like this. You might have to go out of your way a little bit in the beginning to overcome your initial anxieties and fears about it. But once that pump is flowing, you don't have to keep priming it. And that's why I say this is a turning point on the spiritual path. In the beginning, the first half of the spiritual path, for most people, their primary motivation is suffering. As Dr. Wolf used to say, that's the stick. You know, this is what samsara does, what the world of delusion does. It, it beats you forward. And once you start realizing that worldly pursuits aren't going to end this suffering, you go on a spiritual path, it's still you're being motivated by this attempt to get away from suffering. 
And it can seem like a lot of struggle and a lot of effort and there are all sorts of practices to do and they take discipline and whatnot. But after this discovery that suffering is impersonal, it's not happening to me exclusively. It's not my suffering in that sense. And you begin to realize that this giving up this sense of self produces happiness, that suffering actually lessens, and that more and more joy and love flows into your life, you begin to intuit there's a source of all this, if we want to put it that way, that you find at the end of the path, and you begin to run towards it. That's the carrot being dangled out there. You're anxious to maintain your practice and discipline. They go into it more deeply. It becomes much more effortless. So when you hear the terms like the impersonality of suffering, remember we're talking here in quite technical terms on a spiritual path. Person is another word for self. And that self is delusion. That person inside is a delusion. We can still use person in a, in a conventional sense, personality. People have different personalities. My cats have different personalities. It's different manifestations of the form of consciousness. That's all that's referring to. There's no true person inside. There's no true self inside. So impersonal simply means not self, not person. That's not a teaching of something you should do or be. That's a teaching about the nature of reality, of what is. And the task of a spiritual seeker isn't to become selfless, except if we want to talk relatively, is to discover there is no self. Not to become anything that isn't already there. Another misunderstanding we have of the term personal is that personal also has for us the connotation of intimacy. And so to be impersonal sounds like we're giving up all intimacy. To be impersonal in our relations, that's the sign of a cold person, not very intimate. But there is nothing more intimate than God. The Quran puts it beautifully. And that is that God is closer to you than your own jugular vein. You lose your jugular vein, if that gets severed, you bleed to death. So it's your life. It's closer to you than your own life. There's nothing more intimate than God, than consciousness, than reality. In fact, it is your identity. But that identity is also the identity of everybody else who are non-persons. True intimacy, like true friendship and true love, isn't based on two individual separate entities, persons, selves. It's based on a recognition of looking at someone else and saying, ah, it's me and you realize there is no separate I, then there's just that one self, as the Hindus would call it, but a self that isn't an entity, a self that's without attributes. So truly speaking, to begin to sense the transparency of self, the ephemeral nature of self, the um, illusory quality of self, is to begin to discover true intimacy with the whole world that all these barriers and distinctions are not real. They're playful. It's the intimacy of identity. You can't get more intimate than that. Hildegard of Biggin writes that the spirit of God 
is in everything, flows through everything, the rivers and the mountains and the streams. And yes, even in death and all the negative things that we don't like. Going through this fear of losing a sense of self, this is like breaking the sound barrier on a spiritual path. Once you start to break through that, then you begin to really see what the mystics are talking about. You begin to really experience what they're talking about. You begin to really feel what they're talking about. These become the wings on which you soar. It's the wings of your own experience in that sense, not just some teaching. Now, what happens? Let's skip ahead to the end of the path. This indifference grows in the technical sense, a ceasing to make these distinctions make a real difference in your life. You still use distinctions. Mystics use distinctions as conventions, as conveniences, but they no longer have the same reality. It doesn't make a difference whether you're my neighbor next door or my neighbor down the street or my neighbor in China. Just common humanity. It doesn't make a difference whether it's a, a human being or a cat or a turtle or a bug or a blade of grass, or a stone, or a star. They're all just conventional distinctions here, not real distinctions. And as you get to the end of the path, which is the realization that there actually is no self. Another way of putting that is that the reality that you have been seeking However, it's put in whatever tradition, this consciousness, this Brahman, this God, this Tao, is who you are. It's not something that you actually ever had to go find anywhere. Now, what happens in this realization, and I'll use Dr. Wolf's example because the term high indifference comes from Dr. Wolf's work, and what happened to him after meditating on a particular text, and this, by the way, is after 24 years of seeking, so he had a very long path. And he had been off in the mountains, he loved the outdoors, and he used to go there to meditate, and he was pondering the great uh, slogan of Hinduism, if you like, Tatvam Asi, that thou art, which indicates this identity with the Brahman, with the ground of being, with that consciousness. He was meditating on that, and then I think he had actually come back to his house in the San Fernando Valley. And I think he was in the evening, he was sitting on his porch or something like that. And he suddenly just saw it completely. As he put it, I am already that which I am seeking. So the tatvamasi means that thou art. Not that that's what you have to become, it's what you are now. It's a present tense. And it suddenly hit him. I am already that. Therefore, give up the search. How could you possibly arrive at something you already are? If I give you the command, sit down, none of you can carry out that command because you're all sitting down. It's a nonsense command. If you didn't realize you're sitting down, you would struggle and struggle and struggle until you realized, oh, I'm sitting down. That's, in a small way, an analogy for what happens on the spiritual path. Now, when this happened, he didn't expect anything to happen. This isn't a trick to make something happen. You see, you can't do this and say, oh, 
I'll give up the search, then wait for enlightenment to happen. That's not giving up the search. That's carrying on the search by one more tricky little means, see, to give up the search purposely. You understand? Yes, a little paradox in that. But when it dawns on you completely, the search comes to an end. There's nothing more to do. So this means all effort ceases, all searching ceases, ceases of its own. You don't make it cease, it just ceases. Because, you see, we're always trying to grab on something or run from something. And that motion sets up this delusion that hides the reality of who we are from us. So if that just can stop for a moment, it's just obvious. Again, from the Hindu tradition, they say, there's nothing mysterious about Brahman. It's as obvious as the fruit held in the palm of your hand. It's that immediate, that obvious. There's no trick at all. Just... Stop looking the other way. Stop ignoring reality. Just notice it. Well, he noticed it. And when he noticed it, as he said, the heavens opened. Now, here comes a very, very important uh, insight or a, a lesson we can learn from Dr. Wolf's experience. He was uh, not a very emotionally demonstrative person, and certainly in his writing he wasn't. He would write uh, very technically in philosophical terms. And if you read his book, A Philosophy of Consciousness Without an Object, when he starts describing what happened at this point, he starts talking about it's described in the literature as being rapturous and so forth, and he starts off in this sort of philosophical way, and then suddenly he can't help himself. He starts getting into it, and he starts talking about the delight, the supreme delight, it's supernal delight, and he starts running on, and he sort of has to stop himself and go back to his philosophical analysis. And even when he talked about it as I knew him, as an old man, his face would light up and he talked about this delight and now, this realization does produce this bliss, one taste of which it said, and it is absolutely true, is worth a whole lifetime of searching, just one taste of it. And this went on for, in Dr. Wolf's case, 33 days. And this was it, as far as he was concerned. And at the end of this 33-day period, he experienced what he later called the high indifference. And experience is not quite the right word here, but I was speaking relatively. And that was, as he described it, when even this bliss was transcended. Now, this is a very important point, and it's talked about in various traditions, but we usually don't notice it, and particularly when you're on a path and you're struggling with things like mindfulness or something, it seems like, a high-class problem. But bliss becomes the final obstacle on a spiritual path. In the Hindu tradition, it's said that there are five coverings of Brahman that produce this illusion of self. And I've forgotten the Sanskrit terms, but roughly speaking, it's the body, it's the vital energy in the body, it's emotion, it's thought, and then the final one is bliss. And the instruction is to disidentify with each of these coverings. The body is not who I truly am. The vital energy in the body is not who I truly am. Emotions aren't who I truly am. Thought isn't who I truly am. And even bliss is not who I truly am. And his attention was riveted to this bliss, this delight. 
And if your attention is riveted to that, and if you mistake that for the actual gnosis, the reality, the underlying consciousness, then you will have had a wonderful experience. I'm not knocking it. A very, very high mystical experience, but you will have actually missed the full import of it. And what will happen is that bliss will wear off as all manifestations, even the most subtle, are bound to wear off. It still is an experience. It might last for years. It might trickle off slowly. But eventually it's going to die away. It's the last obstacle because it's the last subtlest little thing that a sense of self can hang on to. It's the self now no longer identifying with any of these gross manifestations of body or mind or emotions and all that, but identifying with this bliss that's so subtle and seems to have no particular boundaries and seems to be it. And just that last little bit of identity keeps that last little delusion of self going. The self saying, oh, I am this bliss. That's what I am. Oh, wonderful. But that bliss will pass. Now what, or how are you going to describe the reality, the consciousness that's left when even bliss passes? This is why Dr. Wolf used the term high indifference. And no words can describe it, truly, but he tries to approach by trying to use some idea. First of all, a state of equilibrium. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is given a valuation higher than anything else. In an absolute sense now. We're only talking about in the absolute. It's transcending all dualities, including the duality of bliss and suffering or bliss and despair or happiness and joy and all those things that we can think of, any kind of duality that you could name or think of. So it's this perfect equilibrium or equanimity is another word, but not just even-mindedness in the sense we usually think about achieving some even-mindedness in life and meditation, but an absolute equanimity. The basic reality, the basic consciousness the basic nature of the world is perfect in the sense of complete. It doesn't have to go anywhere. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a high indifference because it has nothing to do with not caring or caring. Those categories will no longer apply. They just will not apply anymore. He describes it in terms of power. Identifying with the power of the universe. And this is tricky and very dangerously put. So listen carefully. If we have to use relative terms, we could say that it's realizing that you are that very power that causes the sun to rise every morning. That very power that raises a blade of grass out of the ground that makes the wind blow, the stars shine, and whatever. And this isn't a personal power. That is the most dangerous misunderstanding to ever make. This is the ego's dream, you know, that I would have this power. The ego doesn't even exist here. It's just that naked power. And that is the true identity, not of Dr. Wolf in terms of a form, but of consciousness. 
We're putting it in slightly mythic terms here, but knowing this, would you change anything? Would God change anything? We would change things, the ego, the little self, the personal self. We want to change everything all over the place. We're a constant drive to change everything. God doesn't want to change anything. Everything's perfect from God's point of view. If God wanted to change things, he'd go change it. Again, be careful of this teaching. This isn't a static thing of saying what the ego should do is stop trying to change anything. So if people are suffering, don't try and change that. You're still looking at this in a limited way. Part of the perfection of the world is it's changing. And if you are moved to help people and you go out and help people and you fight injustice and all that, that is part of the perfection of the world. We're not talking about anything static. We're talking about something that's beyond both motion and a state of staticness. Those concepts just will not apply anymore. I guess the best way to say this is all the distinctions that we make in this high indifference are seen to not make a difference ultimately. Ultimately. They certainly make a difference relatively. That is how the manifestation of the play of God comes about. But ultimately they don't make a difference and the distinction between non-distinction and distinction ultimately doesn't make a difference and ultimately isn't real. So this is what Dr. Wolf was trying to get at. Rather than having our minds try to grapple with this, more important for us at this moment is to learn the lesson of this, however. And the lesson is that any attachment to anything manifest will be still an obstacle, no matter how divine, no matter how spiritual, no matter how uh, glorious. Any slight little attachment will keep this delusion of self at the very subtle level going. Once that's let go of, once that bliss is let go of, as the Buddhists would say, and again in a mythological sense, you've crossed the other shore. Once you've given that up, there's nothing left to hang on to anywhere. Another Buddhist term for it is abiding and non-abiding which is even better than crossing to the shore because that sounds like you're going from one place to another and then settling down someplace. Abiding and non-abiding. Not finding any place to abide. There is no place for any self to abide. That's why it's free. Completely free. Absolutely free. Not the slightest little clinging. So there's a connection here between this discovery of the impersonality of suffering, that the distinctions we make between your suffering and my suffering don't really make a difference, and the ultimate realization that no distinctions make a difference, ultimately. There's part of the same progression of insights, if you like, Deepening, deepening insights into the true nature of reality. We just have to be very careful not to let our normal uh, associations with these words 
loom up and interfere with our understanding. When you run across teachings like this, read carefully. See if he's really talking about indifference in the lowly sense, in the sense we really mean it. And I'll tell you one last little story about Dr. Wolf. On his deathbed, as he was dying in the hospital of pneumonia, he was in a delirium. And his uh, companion and nurse who had lived with him the last couple of years of his life, Andrea, was with him. She was sitting beside him. And he was struggling in this kind of delirium. And he was 98 years old. And, uh, you know, he's a very old man. And and now he's with this pneumonia and this delirium, and he's wrestling around. And Andrea reaches over, and she pats him. We used to call him Yogi. And she says, Yogi, she says, rest, Yogi, rest. And he bolts up in bed, and he says, rest. He said, I will never rest until all beings are liberated from suffering. Boom. Back into his delirium, and then a day later, two later, he died. What's on his mind on his deathbed? I'm dying? How terrible. I'm suffering. No. On his mind is all beings. That's how deeply he cared. Think about that. Think what you would be thinking on your deathbed. And a thought that comes from this deepest level of consciousness breaks through this delirium. So be careful when you read these terms, impersonal suffering or high indifference. Read carefully. These terms have deep meanings, much deeper than we're used to dealing with in our culture. And ultimately, it's not a question of understanding the concept, but letting it lead you to discover this for yourself. So, any questions? I sometimes wonder if it wouldn't make it clearer just to call it unity consciousness and not deal with the differentiation process, which the opposite of differentiation would be something like the similarity or unity of all things. And if you call it the positive, like the unity, rather than the indifference, it might make it clearer. But then that's a cliche anyway. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. And by the way, every tradition tries to arrive at the best expression. And then that becomes a cliché, something that people focus on to. So then somebody else in the tradition comes along and, you know, makes another adjustment. It's a, a constantly pulling the rug out from under, you know, the seeker who's conceptual mind that's always trying to lock on to things, you know. But there's also another uh, general problem in the way the terms are used today, and that is there is a unity experience that is fairly common on a spiritual path. That's sort of the name it's been given in English, which is not gnosis, an uh, experience of a oneness with everything. Do you know? Sometimes people have this walking in the woods. It can be quite profound. I'm not poo-pooing it in any sense, but it's an experience that passes away. It doesn't have that ultimate gnosis content that is that absolute revelation of no self. So if you read through... Um, text, you'll find that this unity experience is described, and it's not to be mistaken for gnosis. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I don't use it anyway, or I use it in that lesser meaning of it. That phrase, consciousness without an object, uh, also the tail end of it is, and without a subject, is the kind of a kicker there. Yes, it certainly is, and that is the full expression, consciousness without an object and consciousness without a subject. Mm -hmm. And it's very important, because actually without a subject... 
is the deeper understanding in this. You might say, this is, I'm glad you brought this up. You might say that what Dr. Wolf called the first realization, he ended up calling it a nirvanic realization. And he uses nirvana in the sense of the absence of a world, the absence of objects. The absence here is not the absence in the sense of a vacuity that objects are disappearing, but he realized that objects, the world, has no ultimate existence as a world of distinctions. And you might say that the high indifference was the second shoe that dropped the absence of any subject. Because this is what creates this delight when you realize there's nothing to be afraid of. There is no separate world out there full of objects. That's what generates all this bliss. But then the subject becomes that bliss, you see. So then when the bliss goes, then you see there's no subject and there is no object. There's just consciousness. Good point. If you look at a cat drowning and a human drowning and you can only save one, would he see them both as the same? Sure, and he'd save the human, no question about it. Okay, so there's an earthly distinction, but even though there's this underlying understanding that everything's one, we're still sorting according to our consciousness. But you see, it's tricky now. No longer are we sorting. This is the play of God sorting. And now if we speak relatively again, yes, we're part of the play of God. But there's an understanding that there's ultimately no I volitionally sorting anything. That's what makes the difference. So sorting still goes on. You know, the teaching is, look, this world is, is it right here. It's perfect, just the way it is, see? Look into what's going on very carefully. Nothing changes. It's just a realization about the true nature of what is going on right now. So it continues to go on. Look, let me put it this way. You think that you're sorting and making judgments and doing all this. This is the problem. It's not that sorting and making judgments and all that isn't going on. That's obviously going on. But you're not doing it. God's doing it, if you like. Consciousness is doing it. And the other point, I'm wondering how a person that's enlightened or whatever, um, you said there's no difference when they look at a bug, a cat, a human. On one level, I understand you. And I'm wondering, would you walk around like that 100%? Or would there be differentiations made? Ultimately, there's no difference. As long as we're using language, we're going to have to make some distinctions here, otherwise we'll shut up. But the reason to use that term, ultimately there's no difference, is to show that what is ultimate and what is relative are complementary here. Ultimately there's no difference. Obviously, in a, uh, in a particular world. situation, there's no finite world, but in a particular given situation, the situation wouldn't be a situation unless there were some valuations and judgments and stuff going on. The world comes into being because of distinction. We make distinctions. And distinctions not only between things, we make value distinctions. This is how the world comes into being. And yet the world that comes into being is not separate from its ground and doesn't exist apart from its ground. And all of it, every gesture of the world evaporates, just like writing on water, do you know? You write something on water, the minute it's written, it's gone. I mean, it's, this is the nature of the world. It doesn't have any ultimate reality apart from the water. It's just movement on water. They're inseparable, ultimately. 
I say the waves don't have any ultimate reality apart from the ocean. That doesn't mean that there aren't waves. It just means you can't take a wave and pick it out of the ocean and take it home with you. We can talk that way. We can talk about the ocean and its waves. There's the ocean and it produces waves. But that's our language making a distinction here. But it's not a real distinction, you see? So it's to see in every gesture the divine, if you like, to see consciousness in every gesture of the world, including gestures that are valuations, including a judgment that might be made about saving a cat or a human. This is consciousness at play here, too. This brings up something that's interested me for quite a while about the idea of um, making distinctions between humans and um, other sentient beings, you know, all the way down the line. Um, And, you know, like meditating in a forest or whatever, sometimes I imagine that everything out there itself it just simply belongs to um, a collective existence and that you know the sense of being human is against it you know I mean against it not in conflict necessarily with it but defined against it or, or um, you know differentiated against it and, um, and this is troublesome to me. Um. Well, I would suggest two things. First of all, I think you should recognize that the root of all that is a delusion of being a separate self. That this is a common human delusion. You know, the particular dimension that sounds like you're describing in your experience in nature or the particular caste it has is perhaps culturally determined. In our particular culture, there's this Mm -hmm. emphasis on, you know, being against nature, which you wouldn't find as much in Chinese culture and so forth. Although you still find the delusion of self, you know, but it doesn't have that quite same expression. Well, the the boundary lines are drawn differently. Exactly. Each culture draws the boundary lines different. So that's another indication that these aren't real, or they couldn't be drawn differently. But finally, what I would suggest is... I think it's useful to use your imagination in a setting like that. But try to let the imagination lead you into an experience rather than let the mind keep trying to find some intellectual solution. You see what I mean? You can often get into deep meditative states by using imagination this way. You imagine everything out there as a unity and there's this one last wall. But at some point, you can find experientially, where is that wall? You see, then go look for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you go look for it. And sometimes you can quite easily realize in that moment there ain't there, and then you will just fall into an experiential insight, you know, that can be quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to that mm-hmm. question. You see two human beings drowning, and one you like and the other one you don't. And... Or maybe in this high state of consciousness, you don't prefer one human being over another, I don't know. You're asking questions now about how to make moral judgments, right? I mean, let's generalize a little bit more. How are we going to make moral judgments? These are judgments that are called for, whether we like it or not in our life. What's the right thing to do? And I would say this, the right thing to do is always the selfless thing to do. 
Selfless meaning taking into consideration to the best of your ability what's good for the whole situation as a unit. Do you see what I mean? And if you take that one principle, trying to make the selfless decision, that will always be the moral decision. It's not a question of writing out a prescription that will apply to every situation because one prescription might not work in another situation because then in that situation it might become more selfish to do, you see? So you can give general guidelines. It's a good idea never to lie. But there are some situations where the selfless thing to do is to lie, you see? To protect somebody who's innocent and you have to lie to protect them and you put yourself at risk, that's the selfless thing to do, not telling the truth in that situation. We have precepts at the center, for instance, not to lie, not to deceive other people. That's a general precept that will apply in most situations. But what connects morality to the absolute and what makes it not just a free-flowing relative sort of thing is this overriding principle. So in a situation where two people are drowning and you like one and you dislike the other, well, I'll just give you an example from my life. Let's say the one I liked was Dr. Wolf, who's 98 years old, who's realized everything there is to realize spiritually, who's taught to the point where his body and mind is exhausted. And then there's a, a child, uh, maybe even a child that I know that I personally don't like, a, a nasty, you know, obnoxious kid, right? Six years old. I'm going to save the kid, you see? I'm making that extreme so you can see it's obvious where my personal likes and dislikes are irrelevant in that situation. It's not always so clear-cut, you know. Maybe there are two people and you slightly like one better than the other and maybe the other one's only five years younger than this one. You know, it can get tricky. And not only can it get it tricky if they're both drowning, you have to make that decision instantaneously. The thing to do is to get the self out of the way. If you're operating selflessly, if you're operating out of love and compassion as much as possible, you trust that to make the decision happen. But this is all clear, but I mean, even, even if, if you suppose, the, the, as the example you gave with the 98-year-old and, and the 5-year-old, everything's clear, it's still, the, I, mean, who, who are you, I mean, who are we to make that judgment anyway? You know, I mean, I know some, I know some uh, one can do what, uh, the best judgment they can do, but how can we make this judgment? Ah, that's a wonderful question. It can only be answered in the moment. This is a wonderful spiritual practice and a wonderful place to look for some I. And you put it very well. Who am I to make this judgment? Y you aren't. There is no I in there to make the judgment. Watch how the judgment is made when you're faced with a situation like that. Especially one that's quite critical and especially the one that you have to make in a short amount of time. It's a wonderful place to watch. It gets to one of the key components of this delusion of self, and that is will, individual will, the idea that I will things. This is one of the hardest things to see that will isn't personal. So if you're in a situation where you have to make a snap decision, watch how that decision is made. You'll never find any I in there. Now, and there's another corollary to that. There are times when you can't make a decision. You feel frozen, like Hamlet. You see? don't know what to do. Watch carefully. There'll be a very strong sense of I in that. 
And that sense of I is what's blocking you from making a decision. Let that go and a decision will happen. It's a wonderful place to conduct this quest for who am I, to make this inquiry in those situations where decision has to be made. See what happens. Answer your own question from your own experience. Who am I to make this decision? You can't figure it out intellectually. You can only start watching situations where you have to make a decision. That's where the answer will come from. I had a question about, um, you mentioned using your imagination to lead yourself to an experience. Is that just in terms of contemplating your imagination, or what exactly did you mean by that? You can use teachings this way. You read something, and it directs you to try to see the world in a new way. And that means reconfiguring your distinctions. It's not necessarily getting rid of your distinctions. So then you try to imagine the world this way. For instance, a good example would be, um, oh, maybe you're reading about a shamanic culture. And at first it, it sounds like nonsense. Well, it'll always sound like nonsense if you're trying to interpret that in terms of how you've configured the world, in terms of your distinctions. But if you give that up and try and put yourself in a shaman's shoes and try to imagine the world this way, experience the world this way, for instance, so um, often the, the moon is related to water, is related to uh, the tide. Uh, all these manifestations of nature have a certain uh, relationship. Any manifestation where there's concealment and revealment, like the moon, they'll all be related in a string of symbols. And it sounds very strange to our ears. Well, go out and watch, uh, watch the moon, watch a brook. You know, Try to see what it would be like to imagine the world this way. And in a certain sense, put yourself in that shaman's shoes. And it will change your experience. Now, that flip of experience gives you an insight into how uh, imaginary these distinctions are. As you can flip around like that, you see? So you've let the imagination lead you to a new experience, and then there's a possibility of insight in that experience. So that's how you can use imagination. The tricky thing is to always be looking for the insight in what you can learn about it and not just be tripping out with your imagination. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And also not to think, oh, well, now the shaman world is really real, which a lot of people do. It's just different. Okay, let's uh, bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And as usual, you're welcome to stay around and have tea and check out the library.